Welcome to the Action Research Podcast, somehow the first podcast dedicated solely to action research. Each episode, action research experts Adam and Joe explore facets of this research methodology. Speaking with experienced and emerging action researchers, they aim to contribute to this important and growing field and understand the nuance and process of action research in action. Thanks for tuning in. Now, on to your hosts. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Action Research Podcast. Today, it's Joe and I. What's going on, Joe? How are you? Good. How you doing? Been a little bit. I'm doing well, thanks. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. I know that we're a little bit closer geographically. You're in Peru, at least, right? I'm in Peru. I'm in outside of Lima right now. Big uh, political situation happening right now. So we were trying to do this in person, but it seemed like we're not going to be able to do that right now. Yeah, it's a little bit of a sticky situation down here at the moment, but we're safe here in the valley. Everything is relatively chill. So I think the plan for today is to jump back into the Voices from the Field series that we started this season. It's been a little while since we recorded an episode on this, but for those of you who are listeners that are new to this concept, Voices from the Field is basically a segment of the Action Research Podcast where we are doing our best to bring a live action research project to the podcast, to our audience. And the project that we've been featuring is called Café Origenes. Um, it's a project that I've been working on down here with coffee farmers um, through our organization, the Annual Alliance for Sustainable Development. And yeah, if you are new to this, I suggest you go back and listen to the first two episodes to get caught up. Joe, does that pretty much sound good to you at this point? Or- it sounds good to me. I'm looking forward to getting caught up on what's happening you know, with the project. Cool. So it's been a while, right? And considering that, I think to avoid me just kind of going on and on and on about all the nuanced details and successes and challenges that we have faced, I identified milestones or things that have kind of risen to the surface to me when I think about what's been going on since we last recorded. So. I'm just going to go ahead and throw a few of those out there to catch you up, Joe, especially. I mean, you and I haven't really spoken about this either. And I know you've got a couple of questions for me. So first, an update on the farmers. As of this past year, the coffee growing season, right? So specialty coffee here in Peru is, is harvested between like May and September. So when I refer to like a year, it's kind of from one harvest to the next. Since we last recorded, we've been through a full harvest cycle. So during that time, we increased the amount of farmers that we were working with. So now we're working with very directly with 41 farmers. They're all formally participating in this project. And more so, they're formal members of of this cooperative, um, which is something that we spoke about in the last episode, which I think we're going to dive deeper into now because I think it's a really cool component to what makes this project action research. But it's really cool because it gives them a platform to participate and they have voice. And it's hopefully through that co-op that we'll be able to see some real tangible improvements for the farmers, which I think we're beginning to see. In addition to that, I wanted to talk about how our organization and the Andean Alliance staff members that are participating in this project, we've really done a good job of figuring out how to maintain a constant presence out in the Mapacho region 
because it's far, it's hard to get there. And when we go, we usually have to plan to stay there for a few days at a time. It's not like we can kind of pop in and out easily. So those trips, you know, we've kind of got a little bit of a system down as far as what those trips entail. We're doing everything from distributing supplies to facilitating workshops to coordinating meetings with the co-op and with community leaders. Sometimes we'll do surveys and to essentially monitor and evaluate the program, social events. And similarly, you know, we're seeing more of a presence of the farmers in the office here in Kalka. They'll do the same thing. They'll come to Kalka for a certain amount of time each month. Some of them have family here. So constantly kind of coming by the office saying hi sometimes they have an agenda sometimes they don't but it's really cool from a relationship building standpoint the third point is that the indian alliance luckily has been successful in raising or receiving funds and grants and donations to support what we're doing out in the field there was an episode previously where we kind of spoke about the importance of funding and financing and action research projects and um, it's something I've been thinking about a lot and it's kind of a necessary component whether we like to think it is or not. We've received a few grants which allows us to drive the intervention in the communities to really help farmers be able to maximize their participation in this project. So we're investing in things like organic materials to improve soil quality, actual infrastructure such as drying beds for coffee and irrigation and hopefully we'll be getting some financing to support a women's group within the co-op um, which is something that i think is really interesting and kind of came from the co-op as well but the point being we've kind of secured funds to support what we're doing in the field and then finally i think in our last episode of voices from the field joe you kind of asked me what i was most concerned about and my quick response was i don't know what i'm going to do with all this coffee because part of the project involves getting farmers a fair price which means us literally buying and selling coffee and then the revenue that we hopefully generate from selling coffee gets reinvested into the project which is at the core of what makes this a social enterprise but with 40 farmers, we were, we're talking about close to 40,000 pounds of coffee. So that's a lot of coffee. So this year we actually, probably our biggest success was uh, building a partnership with one of the biggest international coffee distributors. They're based in Oakland. It's called Royal Coffee. They really like what we're doing. They appreciate the transparency. And really more than anything, they love the actual coffee. They think it's really high quality. So they bought like 90% of our harvest this year, which we were able to export to them, which does raise some other challenges for us, but it was probably the biggest issue. Nonetheless, that was a really big success. I could go on and on about that as well, but those are kind of like the broad stroke milestones over the past eight to 10 months. I'm very happy to hear that about the being able to move all of that coffee, almost 40,000 pounds of coffee is a lot of coffee, and that you have a distributor now so that you can actually get the farmers a good price for their coffee, and it can be kind of a sustainable process. That sounds great. And it raises a lot of interesting questions. I'm super psyched for the project. 
it sounds like the process that you've engaged in, the relationship building you've been doing is really moving along well, which is probably to me like the most important thing. We talk about relationships all the time on the action research project and like seeing those start to develop and like thrive and being present out in Mapucho and having farmers come down to Cauca. That's not an easy thing. Those are long trips for both parties and having that goodwill there so people can be present is great. And then, you know, at the end of the day, the objective of the co-op, the objective of your social enterprise as a collaborative partnership is to make sure that the farmer's products are being used, sold, contributed to the general market so that they can have the money they need to reinvest in their homes, reinvest in their lives. I mean, all of that sounds awesome. What I'd like to do is talk about like the how. How did you get to this point? Well, it's been a long time, so I'm sure there have been a lot of decisions that have been made, a lot of events that have happened where you're like, all right, this is kind of like, do I do this or not? Do I make a decision in this moment? How did we build these relationships? You know, there were a lot of different pieces that had to go right for this to happen. There's a lot of details there that I think are important. You know, as this is the Action Research Podcast, it'll be important to think about how does this work in terms of kind of principles of action for other people who may not necessarily be wanting to be experts in coffee making or social enterprises or cooperative, but like, how do we do this kind of social enterprise projects that are social justice oriented, that are focused in action research? So my first question is, in the past six months, how has the presence and how have the relationships been developing and how do you feel like, you know, what have you been able to do? What's the phenomenon, the phenomenology of this relationship building that seems to be going so well? Well, it's a great question. My knee-jerk initial response to that is the co-op was is creating a formal mechanism to communicate and in particular give the community a platform to share their voice a voice that's representative of each individual participant, but also the whole, right? So there's representation as the community as a whole, but also each farmer has an individual voice. So we have formal meetings with farmers that are participating in this project where everybody has to come and has to participate. And there's an agenda and there's a formal leader from within the community that is part of that agenda making process. So. In that sense, it's like epitome of a bottom-up approach to this project, which is important. And I've worked with farmers in the past outside of this project and comparing what we're doing now to what we've done traditionally, that's the difference is this having a very formal mechanism to communicate. And it's so important, I'm realizing. You know, in the past, it was like we would work with each farmer individually, in which case they would kind of have their share their voice, but that made it hard to implement a general program, right? Because everybody has their own needs and desires and motivations. Whereas with the co-op and this formal mechanism of collaboration, yes, everybody has their own say, but it ultimately leads to this hyper democratic approach where when there's big or small issues that need to be decided it gets voted on um, from like pricing models and incentive structures and how farmers who participate are going to benefit and if that is adequate to what their expectations are they're part of that 
to other things like just like the policies of the of the co-op or should we have um inauguration party or who who's doing what for that <laughs> you know who's taking on certain roles i think that is like my initial overall response to the relationship building process and then that segues into kind of what i was saying like individuals feel safe and comfortable stopping by our office expressing concerns it might not get solved right there because again everything kind of has to circle back to the collective group as a whole but people are starting to feel trust which is again like a circumstance i think of them having a voice in the project yeah so it sounds like formal mechanisms of communication hyper democratic processes are key for this do you think that the pace of life being a little slower contributes to that ability to be hyper democratic or do you think it hurts it or how do you manage or navigate the like the waiting period between like somebody coming to you let's say in calco being like hey here's something that you know i noticed or like something that needs to be addressed and having everybody vote on in this formal mechanism yeah i mean i think it just kind of fits into a broader structure that exists here i mean assembly voting democracy that exists even in the most rural communities here as you know where each community has a formal assembly each month once a month generally speaking and that's where decisions are made regarding the community outside of this copy project so i think that's why that works here this co-op structure because it really already fits into the hierarchy and democracy that those systems that are already instilled in the communities anyways and then after an assembly and decisions are made we are pretty much in the office like hustling to make sure that we can play our role in all of this and meet our end of the bargain which are putting certain things to this project that are outside of the control of the farmers so in that sense it actually works well because that slow process is brought into the overall general assembly of the co-op but then we can go in the like fast paced acceleration mode of the office and do everything we need to do to make sure that things are moving forward the way that things were decided amongst everybody so for us as an organization i think it works both ways right we can take advantage of that slow process but also it gives us time to be productive and then with respect to the co-op that just kind of fits into the day-to-day -day style anyways so it's a really good fit in that regard right so it sounds like two big takeaways from that reflection one is if you use already existing democratic structures within communities it's much more helpful because everybody's expectations are already set so building off of a current democratic strength within the community is huge and it's working so that's awesome the other takeaway is if there aren't democratic processes already in place in different communities depending on where you are some places have them some places don't depending on the context there's going to need to be some kind of expectation setting it sounds like so that these processes knowing that the timing and the efficiency of them is less than like oh there's a problem i'm the leader i'm going to make a decision based on the feedback from this one person to do something that affects everybody that doesn't happen right that's not happening here because it's hyper democratic so a lot of organizations function that way and if you want to change your organization to be more democratically oriented then there's processes that need to be put in place and these expectations with community members so that they know and there's trust that things are going to happen and it is going to take a little bit of time but the time is part and parcel of democracy and that's okay 
And then when things get going, then you have trust that people are actually going to execute whatever was decided. Does that sound right? Yeah, I'd say that's pretty accurate. And it makes me think of a third thing as well. In this particular uh, example, working with this coffee project in the Mapacho Valley, I think similarly, one of the things that allow for this to work a little bit more fluidly than perhaps in other communities is the fact that, frankly, because this community is so isolated, they aren't, and I hope this doesn't sound bad, they aren't as like savvy to how to work and, and, and quote, and quote, like play along with like outside NGO interventions or even government interventions. Like there's a lot of communities around here where there is a lot of NGO presence, a lot of development work, a lot of people come and do research and they've kind of figured out how to play the game as they should. Right. So if there's handouts coming their way, they get kind of accustomed to that. They kind of know how to manipulate the SIF systems to the, whatever it is that they think they need in order to benefit from participating. And that opens up a whole Pandora's box, I understand, of like challenges with development and top down development. But out in Mapacho, there's really hasn't been any NGO presence or gov barely even any government intervention. So that kind of allows for this pure system to act to work right like to bring a democratic system into mapacho as an ngo but like you know everybody's there's no real ulterior motives right everybody's more or less understands what the goals are and we're working together to figure that out um working together being like the key term there you know so i think that's also a consideration as to why some of these processes are working the way that they are yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And those contextual considerations are essential, right? Um, for anybody trying to do uh, any kind of social justice work or collaborative community-based work. I mean, all of that stuff is really important because knowing and knowledge to work together and the energy and the wherewithal to work together, as well as having, you know, a lot of times because of legacies of colonialism or legacies of capitalist exploitation, people are usually more untrusting and to be able to build that trust is takes a long time but it, it sounds like in your context there was a little bit more of like openness to working with people because it was kind of the fresh experience and um being able to do that together with no ulterior motives is huge it's very easy to trust somebody it sounds like you're you're doing that for sure and then there's some elements of this process as well that this is making me think about that are also important that are less intentional but they're important like you know we've got juan casa and julio nina kusiupanki that are asd staff members that you know they're from calca they're quechua speaking they also inherently understand these processes and they're in many ways the face of our organization out there the co-op assemblies are in quechua i mean sometimes they go spanish spanish to quechua of course but I think that also that something like that helps create trust. It's not me showing up out there, like trying to get these complex processes to rise to the surface and be productive using in my second language and the way that I look that's different than them. I also think it's a hard element of this project to ignore as to why it's successful. We do go out there and I personally do have great relationships with these farmers as do other members of my staff that aren't Kichwa speaking, but being able to relate like that is important for, to move this project forward, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Those are important elements to make sure that people are aware of in terms of how 
these things get off the ground, how these things become successful, how they become uh, collaborative, community-based action research projects. Speaking of action research projects, one of the questions that I had following up on that is like, okay, so the action side is moving along, all of the principles are in place to get the action happening. So where's the research in this? Like, what's the research part? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Because we're so kind of full on, you know, and like, well, yes, this is action research at this point. It's probably more action, <laughs> frankly, at least from a very formal level. However, on the informal side of things, well, there, there's formal and informal sides of what makes this a research project. You know, if anything, I think that the formal side kind of falls in line with the monitoring and evaluation that we have to do in the field as it relates to impact. Uh, so really kind of trying to get a feel for if what we're doing is working from a social and environmental and impact oriented standpoint. Unfortunately, that's a long-term endeavor, right? So we can collect information about that as we go along, but the type of impact that we're having, hoping to have, you know, there are some short-term impacts, but it's largely in the medium and long-term as it relates to like agriculturally, if there's actually increases in production and quality and farmer livelihood. So, I mean, that's a relatively quantitative angle that we take, which is literally going out there and surveying participants. And I think that's great. I think a lot of times in action research, for whatever reason, we want to steer away from quantitative or mixed methods approaches. But I actually think that they go well in concert in a project, at least a project like this. The more qualitative side, I would say that's what's probably a little bit more informal. And is, and is what similarly from like a reflection angle, I think there's certain reflective processes that are embedded in the co-op assemblies, but we haven't really been through a full iteration of this project yet, really, you know, I think like, cause we're still kind of tying up loose ends from last year's harvest and we're still designing and implementing certain incentive structures that farmers don't realize are part of this project quite yet and also distinct from other co-ops so for example um you know we're implementing what in spanish we call liquidation it's like a liquidation which basically means if your coffee scores at a certain level or if it's bought at a certain price then, then you as that farmer are incentivized through that right you can earn extra money because of the quality of coffee that you as a farmer produce or because of the energy that you put into this project or your commitment to this project but we haven't quite been able to implement that yet i think once we do the, the ref, there's going to be some pretty strong feedback from farmers regarding the way that they're valuing their participation in this project but it's been hard to make this project iterative, really uh, take advantage of iteration as an element of action research because it's still so new. So, but, you know, again, with farmers just coming through the office, the informal discussions, you know, like every now and then I'll be walking through Calca and I'll see all the guys and like, the vibes are good, <laughs> you know? And for me, that that is like, there's something reflective in that, right? There's something to be like, okay, we're heading in the right direction. You know, we're moving fast. It's getting kind of bigger than I anticipated, quicker than I anticipated, but it seems as though 
things are on track and that's like my own reflection on this um so it's a mix of formal and informal processes as we're still sort of getting our feet under us what this project means both from an action and research perspective i know that action researchers tend to do qualitative work but action research in principle is not anti-quantitative research it's just the quantitative inquiry that happens needs to come back to the community right and so the information that is gathered is in response to practical day-to-day -day issues or questions or problems and it sounds like that's what you're doing with a lot of this quantitative stuff am i right about that yeah it is i mean there's at least three audiences um one is kind of for us as facilitators to make sure that this project if not impactful heading in that direction additionally yeah it is bringing that information back to the co-op which we will once it's kind of all analyzed and everything and then the third is funders or people that want to support this project because a lot of times they do want to see measurable impact and that's one of the beauties of this project frankly is that it is so easily measurable and the goals and outcomes are so clearly defined that justifies, I think, those sort of like survey-oriented quantitative approaches because all three of those audiences are equally important. Right. That makes sense because that's part of what action research is about, right? The inquiry, the information from the inquiry is always returning to the state, not necessarily stakeholders, but the participants, the community members, the folks who are engaging in this project. So in that regard, it's now you're doing some of that. Another example of that is different than monitoring, evaluation, and surveys, but it's like, you know, with, with this particular project and specialty grade coffee, there's a scoring system, which is indicative of the quality of coffee. Now, that is something that these farmers were never exposed to. They didn't even really understand that concept. And that was one of the reasons that they were being taken advantage of by intermediary coffee buyers and why we intervened in the first place. So when we bought coffee from everybody this year, right, 40 farmers, that's 40 different lots of coffee, at least, all with their own unique characteristics and flavor profiles and aroma profiles, which get consolidated into the score. So when we get them all scored, that was one of the coolest things that I've seen was we, we then go back to the community, to the co-op assembly, now that they have an idea of what this process means, and we kind of like announce everybody's scores. And, you know, if someone scored really high, you know, everybody's applauding and they get a little certificate. And it's really cool to see how that like incentivizes others because everybody's right there on this, on the cusp of being really high quality coffee, which is going to turn around to help them, right? Because we'll be able to sell it for more money and then they'll, that money will go back to them in the liquidation process and back into the co-op. So that's another example of, I guess, the research side of this, frankly, and like it is somewhat quantitative, but it was a huge element of motivation for this project. So I think that's another cool example of that. Yeah, absolutely. One of those things where you get to deep information comes back to the community and helps make decisions. And that's what action research is about. Is it competitive or is it collaborative? I think it's a mix, to be honest with you, but I think it's a healthy, I think that that competitive element is healthy because the farmers are all pretty motivated, especially now that they see that there's incentive. So, I mean, everybody's, I think, is legitimately happy for their local community members. That's just kind of how things are here. 
it's not competitive in the way that it's like threatening. But because everybody is on the cusp, I think it also creates a sense of excitement to see their neighbors achieving because they know that next year that could be them. And that's also what we're committed to as our part of this project. Um, so it's a mix, but I think either, I think in both regards, it's pretty healthy. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and if everybody's at the top level, everybody gets the extra liquidation bonus, right? So, yeah. yeah. So it sounds like, so there's some kind of mini action research cycles happening. You haven't done a full iteration yet. Are you doing action and reflection as a co-op, as a team, uh, within yourself? Is there any action and reflection? We're kind of approaching that as we speak. I know that we're about to implement like a pretty significant visioning size internally that I think a lot of reflection is going to come out. Each week there's a certain element of like action and reflection. I guess to bring our audience in on some more of what that looks like from like a very tangible perspective. We're kind of over the past few months forced to do that in a very real way because there's been a really bad drought here. The main source of irrigation for farmers is rain. And because of rain patterns that are erratic, there should have been rain starting around October out in Mapacho, October, November, December. And there hasn't been. And that's really having a big effect on the crop and the production. And that was a problem and a challenge that the farmers were all both formally and informally communicating to us. So as an organization up until now, like the main thing that we have been, for lack of better words, investing in is soil quality and like all these abonos and composts and that we would bring out to improve the soil quality and further improve the production and quality of coffee. We kind of had a shift talk about shifting away from that because without rain, it wasn't benefiting anybody and it wasn't having the impact that we needed. So we had to kind of shift and talk to some funders and talk to some of the things that we were doing within as an organization to invest in this project and move from abonos to irrigation. And that was a pretty major shift. And, it, and I think it came through an action and reflection cycle. Again, it was, yeah, it was relatively formal because every week we're talking about this stuff. Uh, so that, that I think is one example of what we've had to be, what we've been doing thus far this year in the short term from an action reflection standpoint, I think with action and reflection, you have to look at it in kind of short, medium and long-term lenses. And, and that's kind of a short to medium term outcome. And we're about to dive into some more long-term action reflection discussions related to like, okay, in five years, where does this go? What does this look like in five years? How are we scaling out? What does that mean for our co-op and democratic processes? How are we making this efficient? How is it sustainable? So that's kind of in the works as we speak, I would say. This constant communication also fosters a lot of action and reflection, right? Because it's kind of built into the assemblea process within the Mapuche community. I know that that's how it works in Payata as well. I mean, one of the things I keep kind of hearing myself say, and it'd be interesting to talk about, maybe if not today, but in future episodes, is this idea of like formal and informal processes in action research, because formal processes, I think are important, but they're also tricky. 
And I think informal processes are also important, but tricky, <laughs> you know, but they all happen. So I think as it, at least as it relates to the research side of action research, um, perhaps that's something that we can dive into. I'd be curious to hear how that manifests in your world as well. And perhaps other action researchers, because I tend to be pretty aware of the informal. Um, and I think that also works perhaps better out in the communities, not necessarily always, but that's an angle worth exploring in action research and the distinction between formal and informal reflection processes. Let's, let's talk about that. I think that's a great title for the next episode of the action research podcast. You know, what counts as data, what counts as research, what counts as inquiry, what counts as action research. All of that has a lot to do with the formal and informal. Cool. Let's do it. All right. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? Um, it's the end of January. So I think over just talk a little bit about what to expect over the next few months for us. Um, and some of like the, what we're busy doing and a little bit of a teaser until we can catch up on, on this project again. But, you know, we're halfway through the growing season already for this year. Well, a little bit less than that. The rains have come. We're just continuing to go out to the community and do everything that we can out in the field from like a composting standpoint. We're spending a lot of time in the, out in the field and hopefully the farmers production can, you know, at one point the farmers were worried, you know, that they're going to lose 40% of their harvest this year because of that drought. So keep it, keeping a close eye on that. Luke and I will be going to the specialty coffee expo in Portland in a couple months to continue promoting the project and to spend some time with Royal, who's the distributor. They'll be there, get that good informal relationship building time in with them. Our biggest challenge right now is finding some financing because the way that this works is we have to buy the coffee from the farmers, right? As they're producing it. So over the course of May, June, July, August, with, and figuring out that pricing model is tricky too because it's a constantly fluctuating commodity. But we need to get the financing to buy all that coffee up front. We're hoping, we're, as of right now, we jump from 40 to 60 farmers already. So if, if we're buying 50% more coffee, presumably this year, we need to get the capital loan in advance so that we can then turn around and sell the coffee to Royal. But that doesn't happen until October, November. So that's another kind of challenge that we're currently confronting and we'll be spending the next few months really trying to figure out. And then there's actually a whole other side of this, which we didn't really even get to talk about, which is all the local coffee sales that we're doing. We sold about 90% of our, of the coffee that we bought to Royal, but the other 10%, you know, when we sell our coffee to Royal, it's green and they distribute it to their clients who are roasters, but we keep 10% here and we're roasting it locally in Kalka and selling it to local cafes and restaurants and bag coffee. And we're establishing our brand here in the Sacred Valley and trying to tell the story here locally and get farmers' names out. So that's another whole side of this project that is really exciting and hopefully gonna contribute to the sustainability of it. So we're gonna continue to try and sell a bunch of roasted coffee. So that's just kind of uh, a snapshot of what 
what we're going to be up to over the next few months leading up to the harvest season in May. Awesome. When it comes to getting this back to the community and like thinking through the ways in which community-based collaborative work creates a cycle, you know, like a life cycle. So like your step one, like working on climate change, making sure that the soil and the land is healthy and fertile enough to, to be able to produce coffee and then having the farmers and working with them in terms of like composting and organic materials and collaborating with them and that, then going into after doing that successfully, after dealing with the other outside impact of climate change, working with people successfully overcoming that, then doing a collaborative co-op model of uh, production and distribution to be able to not get screwed over by the capitalist systems that are, you know, just trying to get the best coffee for the lowest price possible. So you're paying them more so they have more money so they can reinvest in their homes and families. And you're doing this in a co-op model so that, you know, your revenue is going back into the community as well. Then you got like distribution. So you're moving from like hardcore community kind of working with everybody in collaboration to then getting into these markets, which requires a whole different kind of savvy. Right. So, you know, there's one savvy of like working collaboratively to create great product and, and make sure that the economic benefits are equitably distributed and all of that. And now you're needing to get that product out into this capitalist open market and navigate that and, and make your way through that as kind of like moving towards this final product of a great cup of coffee. So all of this is going on. And you're kind of in the middle of all of this, right? You're working with everybody. Everybody's doing their part. And you're over, you're kind of viewing this and collaborating, contributing in the ways that you can with your teammates and your colleagues. You're also trying to like roast coffee and create a local market because it's important for local people to be able to benefit from this too, right? Like if you have a great cup of coffee and people drink a lot of coffee, everybody should be able to benefit too, right? So there's all kinds of interesting angles and things to talk about, you know, in addition to what you're talking about in terms of the formal and informal, just in terms of the, just the, the complexity of all of the different processes and networks that are in place just to be able to get this to happen. This is really picking up some steam, this project faster than I thought. I think jumping from 40 to 60 farmers, you know, we're just kind of jumping right in the deep end with that, but I'm pretty confident that everybody's going to benefit. And just working in the social enterprise component, the more and more I do and think about this, I just can't help but separate development and nonprofit and NGO, the NGO world with a responsibly driven social enterprise model. They really work so well in concert if you can figure it out. And if you remove one from the other, it creates challenges that could be insurmountable if if you don't have the right experience that's another topic of discussion i think for another time and it goes back to one of the earlier points that i made today in a previous podcasts about just like you can't remove the financing or the funding from development when you can figure out how to combine them and for whoever is facilitating or in the driver's seat to have that liberty, to have the unrestrictions, 
to be able to move patiently, to be able to take the time to build relationships. It all kind of circles back to having a responsible funding model that fits into what you're doing. In this case, it's social enterprise. So that I think is a point that I'll continue to circle back to as a key driver of the, what's the identity of Cafe Origines. There's no like social enterprises about making money for social good, right? Like you got it. And we live in a, a world that uses money. So of course the financing is, is important and you're right about that. And I think that using financing responsibly and doing that responsibly is the whole, at the core of a lot of this. So I'm glad you're going to keep bringing that back. I think it is important to, to recognize that the financing is essential and farmers are producing something important that that's a fusion to other people's lives so that they can continue to live the way that they want to live. Whether we want to admit it or not, that's, that's our reality. This is a great overview and it's great to hear about what's been going on. It's super exciting. And I don't know if anybody, if any of the listeners thinking about the financing, if any of the listeners are like, Oh, I could like chip in some financing for your project or anything like that. Yeah, that would be great. We can put in the link, a link to donate. It's just like a PayPal account where we receive donations for this project. It's all tax deductible if that interests you. I think that's it for now, Joe, but thanks for all the rich questions and the rich dialogue. It's always great talking to you about this and I'm looking forward to seeing you when you finally make it here to the Valley. All right. All right, pal. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Action Research Podcast, created by Adam Stieglitz, Joe Levitan, Shika DeWalker, Corey Legasic, and Vanessa Gold. You can subscribe to our podcast on most major podcast distribution platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts.